Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today, my guest is Dr. Ignacio Quaranta. He's a psychiatrist from Argentina who is sort of leading the field along with Dr. Georgia Eads and a few just very select uh, psychiatrists who are using low-carb, ketogenic nutrition and overall lifestyle interventions to help their patient with mental disorders and psychiatric diseases. And as we talk about in this is in this interview, psychiatric diseases aren't all that different from body diseases, if you want to call it. It's a lot of it has the same uh, the same baseline, the same cause of disorder, and the same potential treatment. Much of which needs to focus on lifestyle. So I really enjoyed his perspective, and I think you'll get that from his from his approach. And also how he's sort of leading the way in Argentina. This movement isn't quite as big as in Argentina as it is in the United States and in Europe. So he's sort of blazing the path there, which I which I really appreciate. Um, also, it sort of ties in a little bit with uh, how Diet Doctor launched their Spanish website. Um, I wish I could have done this interview in Spanish, but my Spanish is not good enough at all. But um, it's reaching out to a whole new market and a whole different world. This is tr uh, truly a global, global event. Uh, so if you want to hear more about this and read the show notes, go to dietdoctor.com. Uh, otherwise, I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Ignacio Quaranta. Dr. Ignacio Quaranta, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thank you for having me, Brett. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, you came all the way from Argentina here in Florida for the Low Carb USA Conference, where you're giving two talks, really. You're giving one in English, and then one, they're having a special day, specifically all in Spanish, and you're giving a talk there as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. there are two, two talks that are going to be about the same, but in both languages, in order to reach more people and be able to join more people into this world. That's great. And Diet Doctor has, has recently launched their Spanish version of their website as well. So when we were speaking last night and, and your dad was there, he asked if this interview was going to be in English or Spanish. And I said, oh, I wish I could do an interview in Spanish, but it would have been a very short interview if it was. <laughs> so here we are. Thank you for, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. So you are a psychiatrist uh, based in Argentina, and now you are part of the whole low-carb movement as treating your patients uh, with nutrition for their psychiatric disorder. So let's rewind for a second and go back to your, your training as you were you're learning to become a psychiatrist. Was there any discussion about nutrition in any of that training? There was no uh, discussion whatsoever, and this is one of the things that uh, really uh, launched me into doing the investigations myself. Um, actually, one of the my my core uh, beliefs is that we study function, we study dysfunction, we study anatomy, we study lesions, injuries, but there's no mention whatsoever to how our brain is functioning, what fuel is using. Does it have it uh, available fuel? Does it not? Is it uh, permanent fuel or is it uh, transient? So um, that really is what moves me into right. studying this. Right. And, you know, my take on psychiatry as, you know, from what I've learned in, in, in medical school was that it really was focused on drug treatment for chemical imbalances, and that was really about it. And let's face it, the drugs that are used in psychiatry have some pretty significant side effects. So it's a it's a huge field that if even if you can't pe get people off all their medications to control their psychiatric disease, if you can reduce the medications, you could have a huge impact in terms of 
daily function and how people feel, isn't that right? Well, that's absolutely right. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a, a big mention of uh, what you just said in in the presentations, because uh, current practice of psychiatry is excessively uh, uh, um, pharmacocentric. It has an excessive uh, pharmacocentric view, and it disregards. Uh, many other things we could be doing for our patients. And um, if you only have one tool, you're, that's the tool you're going to use. And um, really, um, in, in terms of uh, side effects, that's one of the things that uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies haven't been able to reduce much. And when that in, in fact happened, when, when, when there's a drug that doesn't have many side effects, they are usually not as effective. And um, let's talk, for instance, SSRIs that are one of the most uh, available drugs that are used in depression, in anxiety, in obsessive compulsive disorders, in psychotic disorders, for many, many functions. They have a plethora of uh, side effects and adverse effects that are very hard to uh, counteract. And those are drugs that are often very hard to detritrate uh, um, from patients, to take away. Um, and I think that this, uh, this is a strategies that I'm, I am using at the, you know, at a, in my clinical practice um, can have a, a, a huge impact uh, in reducing doses or even avoiding all, uh, uh, to prescribe a drug altogether. So that's... Yeah, great point. Now, and it's interesting to think about the scope of the problem because we talk so much about our obesity epidemic and our diabetes epidemic and the epidemic of chronic diseases that have plagued America and Europe and the world, really. But when you talk about psychiatric disease, it seems like it's fairly similar. I mean, there are estimates that a third of all people are going to have some mental health condition uh, during their lifetime. The association of, of psychiatric diagnoses with reduced mortality and substance abuse problems and decreased quality of life. I mean, it, it's rampant. And I don't think it gets the same attention as you can say the, the other problems, the diabetes, the, the body problems rather than the brain problems. Do you think that's, that's an accurate statement that has sort of been not given the attention that's, it deserves? That's absolutely an accurate statement. And in fact, uh, psychiatric conditions tend to go underreported. Uh, they tend to uh, thus go uh, underdiagnosed, undertreated, thus chronified. So even when they are um, properly diagnosed, psychiatric medications oftentimes uh, make uh, matters worse. They make a, a, a bad problem worse uh, because most of them have one of the uh, most side effects that we see is weight gain. Oh. There's a, an average of uh, between 2 and 17 kilos of weight gain over a, over a, a, a course of a treatment. And that's uh, about, uh, I think, uh, between four or between four and 30 pounds of weight gain uh, uh, on average. And uh, this um, severely increases morbid mortality among psychiatric patients. And like um, psychiatric conditions, um, the psychiatric drugs are dose dependent. And so if you have a, a, a severe condition, you will probably need higher doses, thus increasing morbid mortality and reduce, and highly reducing um, quality of life and 
uh, expectation to get better. It really highly limits uh, recovery expectations in these groups of patients. And um, and yeah, it is an accurate statement, of course. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty troubling. And there's a there's a stigma associated with it. Nobody wants to be thought of as crazy or having a a mental condition when really it's just it's just another health problem. But yet somehow it's got the stigma with it. But uh, even even on, in patients that maybe don't uh, make the cut to be diagnosed with, let's say, major depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder, they may have insomnia, they may might be overweight, feeling really uh, um, with low, low self-esteem, feeling very sad, having very low levels of energy, uh, really don't, uh, having very low levels of motivation, high compulsivity, uh, and uh, all of those make your really makes your life uh, uh, very miserable because it's it's like a vicious cycle it's very hard to get away from it yeah and it's hard to make taking care of yourself a priority when you feel that way so the rest of your health is going to suffer too you're not going to exercise you're not going to eat well you're not going to take care of yourself so it really is sort of a domino effect isn't it it is a domino effect and it is a vicious cycle because uh uh, most of those patients what really uh troubles me is that most of them are really probably doing very well in other aspects of their lives but they uh they've tried many times to lose weight to get ahead on their health and uh, they are following the uh, the usual guidelines what the standard of care proposes and they are doing it uh, uh, to the you know to the following the guidelines perfectly and they don't get better so after a while they you know they get frustrated and they are probably going to drop out uh, any type of treatment and it is a vicious cycle that uh, really troubles me yeah we, we focus so much on what people should eat how they should exercise how they should sleep and we don't think enough of what's going on in their brain and, and how they're feeling and how they're responding to things. And uh, and that's, like you said, they may not meet the diagnosis of a major depressive disorder, but how they're thinking and what's, fun- what's happening in their brain function definitely impacts their health regardless. So walk us through this. So you went through your training, you learned to become a psychiatrist, you started your practice. How did you take the path less traveled? How did you differ from everybody else and start to think, huh, let's look at how nutrition actually affects the function of the brain and and see if that's going to help people. How did you make that transition? Well, it's actually, let me rewind a little bit. Uh, Let us go back to year 2005. Um, I was uh, in my last year of med school and we did a, with a friend, we traveled to Michigan and had an experience at the Beaumont Hospital. Um, and, and then I, I there decided to uh, did, do my experience at the, uh, at the weight control center where they prepared patients for uh, bariatric inter- interventions and with a kind of a classical approach. But it was uh, with, uh, with the meal replacement packets and with uh, controlled calories, but with a high, was a high protein diet. They got a lot better and they, they, then they prepared them for the, the bariatric surgery. So. It is a like kind of like a 14 to 15 year uh, um, route for me, and when the time came uh, to decide what specialty I, I'd like to to go in, I was between psychiatry and endocrinology, mm. and psychiatry kind of like uh, suited me uh, m- m- a lot more than endocrinology because there were other aspects uh, that I didn't really care for and really psychiatry uh, I have a I have a passion for it you know really when I study this type of uh, topics I really get really invested in 
And uh, so I decided to go into psychiatry. But, you know, inside of me, uh, nutrition was always uh, an obesity, was always a, 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 a very important topic for me. So I kept, I kept studying it, uh, even for myself, for my own health. You know, it's something that doctors sometimes uh, we, 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 we put aside and doctors ourselves are very unhealthy people. And that's a kind of like a, a pretty uh, strong statement, you know. And um, so I did my residency in psychiatry, where I did, you know, I, I focused on all of the psychiatric uh, large topics, but nothing about nutrition. Well, and um, so after uh, it was uh, about uh, 2013, I came across the, the paleo diet. I started doing it in myself. And then on year 2014, I traveled to France. I did a, a three-month uh, rotation at the, at the psychiatric hospital there in, in, in Paris. And uh, I kept studying and studying. When I came back, um, I had my, uh, my, my girlfriend got pregnant. And, uh, um, and she was, my, my daughter was born in December in 2015. So I, studied, I started studying ways to minimize things in my house. Um, it was pretty, you know, it's a, a, a kind of like a, you know, a different path, but I came across the intermittent fasting, uh, through a minimalist side. Oh, interesting. So it, there ain't more minimalism than, uh, you know, than intermittent fasting. So, so not from a health perspective, it wasn't, let's try this for your health. It was to try this. You don't have to worry about what you're having for breakfast. You don't have to cook. I, you don't have to... I, 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 that's, that was my first, uh, contact with intermittent fasting. Yeah. So I, I read the Brad Pilon's, uh, eat, stop, eat. That was kind of like a seminal book in intermittent fasting. I read it overnight and the other day was my first 24 hour fast. You know, it just drove into it. I felt so great that I started studying, 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 and I came across uh, Jason, Dr. Jason Funk's work, and um, I started studying intermittent fasting in a more scientific way, mm -hmm. trying to see what, what, uh, what there was available in, in terms of studying and in terms of uh, effects. And long and behold, I wrote to him and got to be able to, to travel to, to Toronto in Canada and do, did an experience uh, at the uh, Intensive Dietary Management in 2017, April. And it was on. I lost uh, like myself like 14 kilos and people was asking me, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, like... Uh, so did you, did you go and there as, as a patient of Jason's and Dr. Funk, no, or you I, I went did, as a, as a practitioner a, to learn exactly. in like an internship I, I did an, an, an observership. They oh, have great. an affiliate of observership program. And I, I had been studying for like over two years uh, at the time or a year and a half. So I kind of like reinforced a lot of the concepts that I had studied. And um, I started to implement, um, and the other side of the story is that I was, uh, um, as the head um, of the mood disorders department at the neurological clinic in Rosario, one of the main clinics in Rosario, uh, with a lot of patients coming in all the time. All of the patients came in through me for the psychiatric assessment. So I started seeing this very, very frequent pattern of metabolic disorders among patients. I started seeing all of these compulsivity traits, all of this um, deterioration in the quality of life. And I started asking more about nutritional aspects. So 
you know, uh, as, a, as a surprise came that they were, m most of them following, you know, the standard diet with hard carbohydrate um, uh, ingestion uh, without, uh, you know, affecting their uh, sleep patterns uh, with, you know, with sedentary lifestyles. So I started, you know, with some patients that were suitable on, and I have a, a very strong um, patient to doctor relationship that is a, a very, very important aspect of my practice. Uh, I started implementing intermittent fasting and they started getting a lot better. But in a matter of days, in a matter of weeks, yeah. the, I, I was able to start getting people off medication or detitrating medication, you know, uh, lowering doses. Um, they are start getting more energy level, uh, start feeling better, start telling more people. So now, this is you, how it started. You started with intermittent fasting. Was there a low-carb approach as well? Because something that I found is that intermittent fasting, with the clients that I work with, intermittent fasting is so much easier when you are eating a low-carb, high-fat diet. And it can actually be fairly challenging for a number of people if they're still following the high-carb diet. So did you have to change the way they were eating first to then impose intermittent fasting, or did you start with the fasting? Tell me well, about that. Well, actually, I, 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 myself, I was doing paleo. As I told you before, I was doing paleo before, and then I over my my paleo diet, I um, I added the you know an intermittent yeah. fasting protocols. Um, among my patients, what I find is uh, that uh, a sixteen eight protocol or a 14 10 for women but uh, more around like 16 hour fast mm -hmm. uh, overnight um, it is a pretty accessible initial strategy uh, it helps them a lot to gain perspective take a little distance from what they are doing being able to uh, give more thought about their decisions and having to make uh, fewer choices during the day because if you start eating low carbohydrate diets you uh, you know a, a secondary effect of it is as you start you know reducing your appetite reducing uh, carb cravings and you uh, highly reduce your compulsivity so um, actually my, my my first approach is about uh, implementing intermittent fasting but right now I do it as a combination I also uh, talked with my patients to uh, reduce in uh, first place reduce uh, sugar or highly limit sugar I tell, try to tell them to avoid sugar altogether yeah. but I, I am flexible um, in, in regards to health status and uh, and goals you know I try to be coherent with what the chief complaint of the patient is and their goals and so I try to tell them okay you're gonna have and see a lot uh, of um, better results if you uh, if you do this uh, synergistic strategy and not one or the other just for to lose weight or be uh, in good shape for the summer you know I my, my, my goal with my patients is quality of life that's what I always talk with them. now that doesn't seem like a tremendous intervention you know it's basically skipping breakfast to start and yeah and you're seeing benefits with whatever psychiatric condition they started with just that small intervention, you're seeing benefits right away. Absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely. Um, and th there is an an, an adjuvant, you know, it's uh, the ad, uh, more than adjuvant, an natchasent effect. When they they do the just small intervention, okay, they skip breakfast and uh, go straight to lunch. You know that your breakfast will be your uh, on, on lunch time. 
and they start feeling better uh, already. So they get excited and say they get motivated and say, okay, what else can I do? Right. So it's it's not uh, you that you're only you motivated to uh, um, get your patients to do whatever you think that they should be doing, but they start asking and exploring. And I always stimulate that in my patients. Yeah, no, study for yourself. Have an exploratory and a growth mindset. Try to uh, be progressively incorporating, uh, you know, um, better aspects uh, of uh, yeah. to improve your quality of life. So I try not to be dogmatic or or, or rigid in my interventions because, you know, when you are in the uh, in the clinical practice, face to face with patients, you have to be more flexible. You have to be able to talk with different uh, personality traits, different goals, different uh, activity levels, different ages, genders and all of the, the different uh, types of patients that we, we see. Yeah, well, let, let's get into the physiology of this a little bit because when we're talking about diabetes, when we're talking about obesity, it makes sense why intermittent fasting, why a low-carb lifestyle, why those have a direct and very meaningful impact. Why does it help psychiatric conditions? Why does it help depression and schizophrenia and anxiety? And what is the connection there? Well, actually, there are different uh, explanations explanations for different uh, um, conditions. Um, I believe that in um, anxiety and compulsivity, the avoiding the sugars highs and lows uh, with their compensatory uh, mechanism by um, stimulating the, sec the secretion of cortisol, uh, inflammatory cytokines, adrenaline, that, you know, that puts you in a, in a very uh, vulnerable place, you know, when you're all the time uh, provoking that kind of response in your body. Uh, in depression, the um, lowering, you know, the uh, lowering the stress levels altogether, being able, especially in the atypical depression, where uh, it's more, it has more of an overlap with metabolic inflammatory conditions, is uh, highly linked to hyperinsulinemia and the inability of the of the brain to use glucose as fuel, and that's why it's also linked to type three diabetes or dementia, and it is my hypothesis that um, it's not only affecting memory and concentration, but it's also affecting behavior. It's also affecting mood. I mean, uh, how would you behave if your brain was not being able to use the, 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 the main fuel that your body is using? If you are, have already fixed your uh, metabolism to use glucose as energy and your brain is not being able to use it efficiently. How, how, how are you going to uh, be? Are you going to be uh, tranquil, uh, uh, easy? Are you going to be calm or are you going to be excited, desperate, uh, irritable? I mean, it makes a lot of sense for me. And this is what I'm seeing in the practice, in my everyday yeah. practice. Uh, so it's not that you have to wait until someone is 60 or 70 to make an intervention. But my proposal is that we should be training metabolic flexibility and uh, at an early age, you know, even though you're not uh, perennially in ketosis, but you can, you know, uh, uh, be in the outskirts of ketosis daily, doing some types of fasting, training the fasting ability and being able to use both uh, uh, types of fuel. Um, some patients, um, let's more in the psychotic side, um, like schizophrenia, uh, there are studies, very old studies, 
linking gluten, you know, uh, gluten sensitivity to schizophrenia. Um, I recently had the opportunity to talk uh, with, um, uh, with a patient um, that was uh, uh, having uh, hallucinations and um, really um, persecutory ideas since she was uh, a child, uh, since after uh, some traumatic event at five or six years old. So and she was 34 with continuous hallucinations. And after she read uh, Dr. David Permatter's Grain Brain, she dropped uh, gluten and started doing a ketogenic diet uh, on January. And two or three weeks after that, all the hallucinations were gone. And wow. uh, and those are pretty, you know, strong uh, N1s and uh, and experiences and observations. Um, and this is one of the limitations because it's very hard in psychiatry to uh, get people to do these types of investigations. Uh, so w what we are seeing at the office is very important because I don't think we should disregard the results that uh, people are seeing. So sometimes um, many patients start to lose weight, but they see secondary effects, uh, quote-unquote, secondary effects uh, on mood uh, conditions. They start feeling better. They start uh, seeing more mental clarity, thus making better decisions. If you, mm -hmm. if you are able to make, in fact, we are, uh, we are the results of the decisions we take moment to moment to moment. So if you start taking better decisions for yourself, that's better outcomes to be expected. Yeah, that's a pretty dramatic example that you gave. And, and similar to the example that Dr. Westman um, published almost 10 years ago now of the woman who'd had schizophrenia her entire life uh, since she was like six years old. And then in her 70s, I think it was, is when Dr. Westman started treating her. She started a ketogenic diet. And again, within days, her hallucinations stopped and she was able to come off her medications. I mean, these dramatic case reports definitely have something behind them. But Therein lies part of the problem, is right now we're in a world of anecdotal experience and case reports and not clinical trials and large bodies of clinical research. So it, it might be a little challenging to say, yes, this works, yes, this should be recommended, because what do we have to back it up? How would you respond when, when someone asks you that? Well, actually, that's a, that's a great question because I, I am uh, addressing at my, at my presentation on Sunday the, um, what we should expect and what we should not expect from ketosis or what I like to call the pathways into ketosis. It's not the ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting or paleo or banting or low carbohydrate diets, but it's what you gain from those strategies and what works for you. Um, and I think we should not see ketosis or the ketogenic diets or ketogenic pathways as you know the panacea, the 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 uh, um, the end of it all, and the solution for everything is not the panacea for psychiatric conditions, and it's not the panacea for major depressive disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, severe anxiety disorders. But it 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 is, and it could be a great coadjuvant tool to uh, implement. To, for, for any psychiatrist or for any clinician or someone working at the primary uh, care uh, and being able to intervene and do, a pre and do prevention. I mean, how, safe could, uh, how unsafe could be to, to prescribe to your patients that they eat real food, that they stop snacking all the time, that they uh, 
start to um, uh, talk about talk with them about um, prioritizing sleep uh, patterns that they uh, uh, implement any type of uh, stress man management um, you know uh, strategy uh, those are very safe interventions and we have a lot of evidence to say that those are safe interventions so this is this is not um, what I'm proposing is not a, an excuse to irresponsibly dropping medications if you are under treatment, but it is uh, um, a proposal to widen our views about what we're doing with our patients. Right. Because uh, especially on, under severe conditions, uh, because of what I told before uh, uh, rega in regard to the um, the dependence, the, the dose dependence of the effects of psychiatric medications, we could really uh, uh, reduce and improve their metabolic profiles, even if we are prescribing medications. Uh, and there are also studies uh, uh, regarding the 16 and uh, 16 protocol, uh, um, joining, you know, giving the, the 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 time of the of the medication at the time of the meal of, of meals, and you know, kind of kind of intermittent fasting protocol. Uh, they really reduces uh, um, the metabolic derangement uh, of uh, you know of. Uh, the medications, especially antipsychotic, that are very, very tough on yeah. uh, of insulin uh, levels. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting point you bring up about sort of how deep you need to go into lifestyle treatment to have a meaningful effect. Because there's always this question, do you have to be in ketosis to get the effect? Is it something about the ketones? Is it something about the metabolic shift? Or is a low-carb, healthy lifestyle um, with time-restricted eating, is that enough to see meaningful change. And, and that's also what makes it difficult to study from a scientific standpoint, because where do you draw the line, right? There are lots of studies that show low carb diets don't work. And then they define a low carb diet as 40% carbohydrates. Exactly, yes. right? So it all depends on how you define it. So I think that would make it challenging from a psychiatric perspective. But what I'm hearing from, from you is you don't think it's necessarily ketosis. So um, we hear lots of things about how ketones are beneficial for the brain, whether it's in Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injury and people talking about using exogenous ketones to boost the beta-hydroxybutyrate level to get a bigger effect and bigger penetration into the neurons. And, um, and there's studies that ketones decrease um, uh, oxidation of neurons. There's studies that it increases metal, um, mitochondrial function in the brain. Um, so from your perspective, though, is there something beneficial about ketones and ketosis that you think would be helpful for psychiatric patients above and beyond just healthy lifestyle and low carb? Well, there, there, there's uh, actually been studies that uh, show that um, actually uh, being in ketosis and the brain running primarily on ketones, on beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, helps to establish a more homeostatic uh, state on the brain. Uh, it avoids the, it's a, what I like to call a more stoic fuel because it, it avoids the, this external dependence on uh, um, constant inputs of uh, energy. So I think it's a lot about uh, the energy availability and the energy quality because Ketones don't, don't only provide for a very large de, um, deposits of energy that are very reliable, predictable, uh, thus uh, uh, providing for an, a, a brain state in which you have 
uh, energy predictability. That's fundamental. And then you have uh, neurotrophism. It's uh, linked to a higher production of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, it strengthens uh, synaptic uh, signaling. Uh, it helps uh, provide a more um, physiologic environment for the brain. I'm, I'm a really big fan of uh, Dr. Cunane's work uh, about uh, in brain evolution. Um, he's also, um, you know, he's working a lot, doing a lot of work in, in relation to dementia. Um, and really, uh, is, this is not about surviving, this is about thriving and not uh, what I'd like to tell, you know, I'm focused on prevention and I'd like to uh, people to know about these types of strategies, to start exploring themselves and don't wait until they start getting uh, severe symptoms to start implementing because it might be too late and it might not uh, gain functions, lost functions back. Yeah. Because when, it times, when, it, when we're talking about the brain, it, it's really an energy hog and it really needs uh, a constant uh, fuel uh, flow. Um, and ketones provide that. I mean, uh, especially in patients um, where um, they are insulin resistant. I love Dr. Tate Nat Neyman's uh, meme about um, the it's um, the the dam concept. I don't know if you're familiar with it. The, no, tell me that, that. like hyperinsulinemic uh, state is like a, it works like it operates like a dam uh, holding on your energy stores. So uh, if you um, if you are insulin uh, if you are in a constant hyperinsulinemic state, uh, you will be uh, preventing or impeding those uh, energy stores to to flow. And um, if you start uh, through fasting and low carbohydrate diets, you can start lowering those ins uh, uh, that uh, hyperinsulinemia. Uh, providing uh, this uh, ever-increasing amount of uh, fuel flow. And this is what I see in the clinical practice because after a week or two weeks uh, and three weeks of an implement of, um, uh, of a well-formulated um, ketogenic diet and intermediate fasting protocols, patients do start to wake up, do start to feel a lot more uh, focused, more stable. Uh, they they re really did reduce cravings and they start feeling... Uh, more energetic. And one of the main um, um, chief complaints that patients have at the office when they come is low energy levels, uh, having very low initiative, uh, seeing that they want to do something that that highly differentiates from melancholic depression, that they have no motivation to do anything, but they, they know, they see what the, their goal, what they want, they, they, they recognize that they have everything they want, but they don't have, they just don't have the energy to go with their, what they want to do. So uh, I think if we can rule out all of those patients, we will we'll keep with other conditions that probably don't respond as well to these type of strategies. What do you mean that don't respond? What, what kind of conditions wouldn't respond as well? Because they're, um, if we follow up on the example that I gave uh, about a, um, a typical depression mm -hmm. that is more characterized with a metabolic overlap, with obesity, leptin resistance, insulin resistance, more of a, a personal or familiar history of type 2 diabetes and metabolic inflammatory markers. We also have typical depression, which is more like a melancholic, uh, a more related to um, childhood trauma, 
um, it has a later um, onset, uh, it has a different profile, more linked to psychiatric conditions, maybe schizophrenia running in the family and um, uh, very low appetite levels um, with um, um, clinophilia that is like uh, wanting to be in bed all the time. Okay. Uh, so those won't respond as strongly to exactly. nutritional yeah, interventions that, that, and lifestyle. That's what I've seen. Yeah. And those are very, very uh, hard uh, or tough patients to work with because there's no motivation. They are usually drawn to the consultation by a family member if they have one and they are isolated. Uh, it's a different subtype of depression. And I'm, I'm going to talk about that on Monday, on Sunday and Monday as well. Uh, kind of like trying to... Uh, yeah, to differentiate what kind, what type of, of patients uh, I propose that they have the, the better outcomes right. with these strategies. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to sort of draw the correlation to whether it's diabetes or obesity that not everybody's going to respond the same, but also it's not a cure, right? We're not talking about a cure. We're talking about uh, either a reversal of symptoms or managing disease or reducing medications just like we can with diabetes. And important for people to understand you don't just start the diet and stop your medications the next day that exactly. there can be some serious adverse consequences so they need to work closely with somebody but the problem of course becomes finding that person to work with finding a psychiatrist or even a primary care doctor who's willing to work with them on this so you're in Argentina. I don't know much about the medical culture there, but uh, I, I'd imagine it's your sort of stand out from the crowd as, as a rare breed. Is that the case? Tell me a little more about that. Well, I, I do feel like that. Um, this is also, um, I, there's a market, the, the, the demand that I have for, for my services or what, what I do it at the clinical, in my clinical practice, uh, kind of shows what what you just said because I have high uh, high demand right now and there's a huge subset of patients that really need these types of strategy and work close with a patient uh, because uh, in addition obesity and type two diabetes tend to mobilize patients to do a consultation with a, with a nutritionist, with a, um, one of the mainstream uh, weight loss uh, professionals, um, but they might not uh, relate it to what I said before in, in, re in relation to the um, underreport of uh, psychiatric conditions. They might not do a consultation with a psychiatrist or with a psychologist because uh, of the taboo, because of stigma, because they don't recognize, because some of the symptoms are hard, harder to recognize. They might not even know that they are that they have uh, depressive symptoms because they kind of maybe feel that they have low energy, they are overweight. It's all related to that, and they they, they have a reason to think that. Um, but the problem is that they go to the wrong professionals, and there is a why because. There's um, not all of them. I'm not saying you know that everyone is that is not doing what I'm doing is wrong. It's, I'm far from that, but really, um, I, I I really get very mad uh, when I, I I hear stories from my patients. There is a high rate of uh, verbal abuse about uh, a, a professional abuse with obese patients, uh, and you can see it on live TV. You can see mm -hmm. uh, in the, the Biggest Loser, we also have the, our version of Biggest Loser. 
Yeah, I mean, it gives me nausea to, to, to watch at that program. Really, I mean, uh, you, you see people suffering, you, you see people relapsing all the time, you see people with uh, probably mental conditions or psych uh, psychological um, uh, traits. Um, it's really, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And this is part of what, why I decided to kind of like expose myself and expose what I'm, expose what I'm doing in order to incentivate more psychiatrists to start uh, uh, prescribing or using or at least uh, increasing awareness and observance about uh, this metabolic profile. And yeah, so you're really leading the way for, for Argentina, it sounds like. Yeah, so, so what advice would you give somebody if they want to try uh, getting on a low-carb ketogenic diet and lowering their medications and their physician just isn't hearing it? What, what kind of advice can you well, give Well, um, if, if they are taking medications... Uh, I think um, we really need to, it's more from our side what we need to do. We need to really, uh, I'm, I'm launching like online consultation in order to be able to help patients. Uh, so it's not only in Argentina, and yeah. I can uh, include people that are probably wanting to, uh, to know how to do it. But I have to work close with uh, with a local physician because uh, if if you're taking medications, like you said, you you need to know personal history. Then you need to know. Um, I mean, uh, a psychiatric relapse is not uh, is not a joke, and uh, it's, it's very important to be cautious about this. But I, like I said before, I mean, a 16-8-hour protocol uh, is a safe uh, intervention. Eating real food is a safe intervention. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's like that's kind of like weird to say, but um, improving quality sleep is a safe intervention. So really, they, these are very, uh, even though it might not sound like it, these are very conservative interventions. Yeah, I mean, and I start from there. I always talk with my patients. 16-hour uh, fast is like an anti-seismic structure, and I, and I do the same gesture in my, with my patients. It's an anti-seismic structure. This is where we start from. We're going to move from this, but it is a structure that will give you uh, an ability to better management, better manage stress in your life, and it's very flexible. So if you wake up one day and you don't follow it, not, not a big problem. You, you get back on track. The moment after you 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 know you did something that you weren't planning to do, you ate something you weren't planning to eat, or you drank something you weren't planning to to drink. So I'm also seeing, really, when you lower your compulsivity, I'm also seeing uh, a, an easier a, an easier pathway into reducing addictive behaviors, being whatever alcohol. Tabakism, uh, marijuana, uh, cocaine. I'm seeing, you know, it's uh, if you reduce, uh, and a stressed brain will look for um, a relief, and th this is where culture comes in, or or your personal history. Uh, some people rely on food, some people rely on other types of substances, or binge watching a, a TV show or Netflix. Um, so it is a one-on-one -on -one work. Uh, I'm hoping that more psychiatrists and psychologists jump into, you know, into this wave, into this movement, because it's really uh, bringing back some of the uh, customs that we had 40 to 50 years ago, really. And it's not uh, intermittent fasting is kind of like a cool name for something we should have we shouldn't have uh, stopped doing ever. Right. 
It should just be normal. Yeah, and exactly. We should have names for not eating that way rather exactly. than... Exactly. Well, shape, Dr. Fung says, uh, well, 16NA is just like normal eating. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's not like fasting. It's not like a real fasting. Right, right. And you brought up a good point about addiction because it's hard to... It's hard to address all this if you don't also address addiction, which frequently can be carbohydrates. And there's some serious debate about whether it's a true addiction or not. But I mean, there's certainly a subset of people where it seems like it is a clear addiction and they and they need to be treated as such. So do you see the same? I have many patients that have had no problem uh, uh, dropping their t- um, uh, smoking addiction, but they're having huge problems dropping sugar addiction and grain and, and grain addiction yeah. this has to do with the uh, of, of this these substances being so ubiquitous and uh, offered and so socially accepted uh, you know and and, in, and it also has to do with uh, the the advance in the development and the design of this food because we have to remember that most of these foods I mean when you are carb addicted it's not really rice it's not really potatoes that you're you're you crave is that the 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 processing that adds the addictive uh, behavior and it's also fructose so i'm, I'm a big follower of uh, dr robert lustig's work and really has helped me a lot uh, the approach that he proposes in the hacking of the american mind his latest book i really love that book and it really helped me uh, into finding the way uh, between stress addiction and uh and you know and the ways to you provide relief and also enhancing this is very important enhancing serotonin pathways there are many many uh natural ways physiological ways to enhance uh, your uh, your feeling of tranquility and it's not uh, just uh, taking an antidepressant and this brings me back to a kind of like a joke that i'm gonna <laughs> uh, uh, tell is like most patients, are, well, not not most, but I uh, frequently I get uh, at the office the the consultations. Doc, I have low serotonin. I need something to put it up. And this is kind of like the you know like the clear example of how this monoaminergic uh, imbalance uh, dogma has uh, penetrated the population. You know, someone has like. I have low serotonin, I have to put it back and everything will be normal again. <laughs> why don't we address what might have happened and why your serotonin is low in the first place? Right. Hmm? Everybody wants a pill to fix their problem rather exactly. than Exactly, the quick fix or, yeah. you know, the, or the silver bullet. Right, right, yeah. All right, well, let, let's transition for a second. Um, I find it strange that a low-carb movement isn't bigger in Argentina because Argentinian beef is like the best, right? Tell yeah. me about Argentinian well, beef. I, is uh, it really that good? Uh, yeah, I have conflict of interest. I have to declare in relation to to meat because I, I'm always a, a very proponent of Argentinian meat, and this is why I I tell my patients we live in the you know in the best country, in, probably the best country in the world to follow these types of diets. And sometimes the only intervention that we need to do is remove the bread, remove the potato, and yeah. just eat the meat. If you wanna uh, uh, eat the meat and then put it uh, some side, some vegetable sides, and ha- have a good um, olive oil uh, on this on your salad, and you'll be great. And we have very this uh, um, accessible uh, meat 
and especially the meats that I propose my patients to eat that are not the the lean cuts that are probably more, more expensive but are the, the the cheaper cuts that that's what, what that's what I eat personally myself and yeah. um, this is kind of like the diet I follow and I, I, don't, I don't only intervene in, um, with my patients. I have a lot of friends that I kind of like supervise their, their, their diets and they come to me and say, what can I do? I need to do something about my, my diet. So there I go, you know, straight to the, to the source because it's like I said, okay, uh, first of all, cut every, this uh, everything out and uh, focus on meat, kind of like a carnivore transition diet, yeah. but not, ve- not, not dogmatic, it's not like, I, I, I ate uh, lettuce. No, you, you, dro- you ruined your diet. No, it's not what I proposed. <laughs> but it, it is a great transition because they, they get better pretty, you know, they start feeling better. So it's like I said before, it's, they start asking, what else can I do? What else yeah. can I add to my, to, my, to my life in order to improve it? When you come to the United States and, and have the meat here, can you tell a definite difference? Well, uh, there's definitely a, a difference in the price, <laughs> uh, and also the the types of cuts that yeah. that we we prefer, and there is, it has to do in the way we 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 handle the the how do you call the the, the when you have the the. The carcass. The carcass, exactly. Yeah. It's the it's the way we intervene the carcass that makes uh, some of the uh, uh, the cuts different that yeah. we have available. And what about organ meats? Uh, isn't that I much more prevalent? Much more prevalent, yeah. and I um, and this is very sad because most of it's happy. I mean, it's gratifying for me to tell my patients eat organ meats because it's like kind of like prohibited by a classical a classic nutritionist. You know, they prohibit organ meats, and we have. Mosheja, mosheja would be like thyroids, uh, would be like adrenals, and uh, I don't know which other organ uh, mosheja is. That is like gold because it's pure fat. It's very fatty and um, and it's very tasty to prepare it on butter, garlic, and those are kind of like prohibited in the usual diets. And people, this is the sad part. The sad part. People remove butter, remove organ meats, remove all the fatty cuts remove olive oil, remove nuts. It's like they remove everything that is healthy because of this caloric, calorico-centric view, you know? It's right. like the SICO strategy. And that's it's like, okay, if you want to reduce your calories uh, voluntarily, you, you will be able to do it maybe for two weeks, three weeks, but you will relapse. I mean, it's like, uh, because it's not what our bodies and brain expect from your diet. They start sensing that it's a, a, a you know, a shortcut, uh, so most of the times, mo- most often than not, that elicits stress responses. And this is very important in my, my practice to address uh, stress levels right. because I don't necessarily uh, suggest a patient going under severe stress to do long fasts, but, uh, but I, go, I, I go easier. easier with them and trying to of course reduce uh, stress load uh improve sleep spa- sleep patterns i do a lot of emphasis on sleep as maybe you you've noticed yeah. and um because i i i think it's like the the first step like yeah. i prioritize sleep and, and movement uh, if they are overweight i don't tell them to run i don't tell them to do crossfit or functional training so like go for an easy walk and that's it but just not don't go chasing calories just think about 
trying to relieve stress, try to connect with uh, the nature. Don't take your phone with you. You know, I use a lot of, um, um, I, I talk a, a lot about uh, technology addiction in my in my practice, and this is going to be a, this is and it's going to be a very big problem for future generations. Mm. And if you don't address uh, a, 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 a technology addiction that is the most prevalent to our cell phones, and nobody forgets their phone when they go out of the house. And it's the first thing in the morning what we do, the last thing we do at night. And this um, causes mo most often than not um, chronic sleep deprivation. And we all know that this increases, you know, insulin resistance uh, and, you know, a host of other. Right, right. Yeah, great point. We, we focus a lot on nutrition and it is so important prevalent, but there are all these other factors that definitely need to be considered, technology being one of them. And you brought up the, the calorie restriction part. I mean, the last thing someone who's battling depression and side effects from medication needs is to feel constantly hungry and be counting calories and have the stress from that. I mean, that just seems like a terrible intervention. That Why would anybody recommend that? Yeah, but yet, yet people do recommend them. Yeah. They, they, they get better for, you know, transiently. They feel better because any anyone that... Uh, um, start focusing on any on something. They go to a nutritionist or or a medic or a clinical uh, professional medical professional that prescribes the psycho strategy. They might f start feeling better for the first couple of days because they are doing something about them, and right. you, you know that makes you feel good. But it it also it's a trap uh, because you are eventually fall down of what you're doing, and this will be another frustrating uh, frustrating event. So picking up on what I left before in order, uh, this is a very important message that I like to tell in regards to being a psychiatrist and working with these conditions. It is because many patients come and say, I want to lose weight. And I try to talk them uh, um, about quality of life and being able to intervene in other aspects of their life. And this is what I call really prevention and capitalizing on opportunities on the contact of a patient with a, with a health professional, you know, right. capitalizing each opportunity because you you never know if it's gonna be the last opportunity the patients have, or the the last time is he, he or she are gonna try to to get better. You good never point. know that. Yeah, very good point. Very so good. capitalization of a contact with the with the sanitary system. Right, make the most of the intervention because you don't know if you get a second chance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this has been a wonderful discussion, and I'm so thankful that there are individuals like you taking this message to this whole field of mental conditions and psychiatric conditions, because it's not that different, but yet for some reason it, it's been portrayed as being so different. So so thank you for doing that, for your message, and for taking the time. If our listeners want to learn more about you and hear more about what you have to say, where can you direct them to go? Well, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, it's Ignacio, at Ignacio Cuaranta. I recently launched my web page in Spanish. Uh, I have to do a lot of modifications, but I have a guide for intermittent fasting in Spanish, uh, how to start. Um, and I'm going to put a lot of, in, uh, um, of information up there. This is ignaciocuaranta.com. And um, also on Facebook, I have a page that is called Flexibilidad Metabolica, where I also upload information or interesting uh, articles, um, but mostly on the, those uh, three, uh, three sites. Very good. Well, Dr. Ignacio Coranta, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.